be seated. Good evening to you. Deuteronomy chapter 7 this evening. Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we find ourselves in the middle of Moses' second of five sermons that constitute the book of Deuteronomy that he is delivering to the second generation that came out of the land of Israel, of, of, uh, out of the land of Egypt, of the children of Israel. First generation has now died in the wilderness, and uh, now he is speaking to them of the importance of obedience now as they uh, are right on the border of the land, ready to uh, take in the conquest of the promised land. And uh, so this great wonderful theme, and we continue it in chapter 7. And when the Lord Moses said to them, Your God brings you, and notice that the Lord is bringing them into the land, which you go to possess. So they're not taking the land of Canaan. Uh, they're not conquering the land of Canaan as uh, something that you know they've invented in their own mind, and this is their own idea. They are uh, God's instruments for the conquest of that land. God wants to dispossess, as we'll see in a moment, for certain reasons. Uh, this group of people that he is going to describe in just a moment because of the greatness of their wickedness and their sin. And he wants to put the children of Israel in that land of Israel or the land of Canaan uh, in their stead. And so when the Lord your God brings you, it's his doing, into the land which you go to possess and has cast out, again this is the Lord's doing through the nation of Israel, and cast, has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, uh, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations that are candidly greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. And so Moses speaks to them right up front. You're going to go in. You're going to defeat and displace these people. It is God who is going to do it through you. And, uh, and Moses is uh, very, very open about the fact that these nations are greater militarily. They are greater in number. They are greater in uh, virtually every way, greater and mightier. And yet these nations will be defeated by the children of Israel for the simple reason that this is God's work and that God is, uh, is using them as his agent uh, for the destruction of these these peoples and, and the removal of them in their place of influence uh, in, in the world. Now, he gives them in verses 2 through 5 a series of uh, what would, could be called the rules of conquest. They are, to dis they are to conquer the land, and God gives them a series of rules that they are to keep as they do conquer the land. In verse 2 we get the first one where he says that the people, these nations currently in the land, they were to be utterly destroyed. And again, I think it is very, very important to remember that this judgment upon these nations, this wasn't something that was meted out by the Jews uh, uh, or in order to uh, make room for them in the land of Israel. It wasn't even God uh, displacing these people from the land because they were good and wonderful people, but God wanted uh, a better group of people known as the Jews to have the land. Uh, and, and so God wanted the Jews to have a homeland. He's going to push these people out and everybody just has to deal with it. That's not what's happening here. And um, this is a judgment 
that's being meted out by God? It certainly is not when we understand it correctly, and I'll lay that out in just a moment. This judgment of God is not a reckless judgment. Uh, it isn't that he just woke up angry one day as if he could wake up and, and decided that he's just going to irrationally and kind of rashly and crazily uh, pour a judgment out upon these people. This judgment is so incredibly measured. This judgment that he brings on this people, it is thorough, but it is also a very, very deliberate and measured judgment on God's part. All the way back in Genesis chapter 15, and it's very good to take down uh, notes for remembering these couple of verses that I'll, I'll give to you. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 16, the Lord spoke to Abram, later to become Abraham. And he said, I'm going to take you and your descendants, and I'm going to give them the land of Canaan. You'll be in a foreign land for 400 years before that happens, which spoke of their uh, bondage in the nation uh, of Egypt, where they went from being kind of a glorified family of 70, 72 people to becoming a nation of uh, over a million people, somewhere between two and three million people. But he told Abram, he said, you're going to have that land, but I'm not going to give it to you at this point in time for one simple reason. The sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. There is a group of people among those nations. All the rest of them, I could judge them today righteously and push them out. But the group of the Amorites, their sin is, has not become fully ripe in the judgment that their sin is due. And until they sin in a measure that warrants this kind of judgment, you can't go in. By the time Joshua stands on the eastern side of the Jordan River before he goes in and leads the children of Israel in the conquest of that land and the destruction of the people, God has waited 600 years. That's how patient he is. To give the Amorites and these nations an opportunity to either repent of their sin and turn back, if not to God, at least to the witness of their God-given conscience, so he wouldn't have to judge them, or that they would just give themselves and hurdle themselves headlong into their sin and force him to judge them. And the Amorites were the last group of people to do that, and after 600 years, finally there in that same place, and God looks at it in a way that only God can, no man can, no religious system can, in a way that only God can, and God looked at all of those nations and says, there won't be one in the whole group of them that will turn from their sin. Not men, not women, not children, they won't turn from their sin. And all they will be now is an influence for evil in a very strategic part of the world. And if you go and just go into any uh, library in a major city in the United States and look up the religious practices of the Canaanites and these different nations, they would take their newborn children and they would roll them into the fire. They would burn them alive to their gods. 
The sexual practices were as deviant as anything you could think of. It was terrible. Things you can't talk about in a room like this. And the problem is, is that when you do that stuff in the name of God, those are not convictions you're going to give up easily. And you're going to then expand that religious system and practice into the world around you. God looked at him, said, I don't like what I see. I know what only I can know. Not one of them will repent. I want them taken out. I want their influence taken out. And so the classic illustration for our day is if you had a, were at a playground with your children or your grandchildren and you see a rabid dog making its way across the park on the, over to the playground where children are innocently playing and the dog is drooling, it's rabid, because it does have rabies. rabies is, a dog with rabies has the seeds for its own destruction already at work inside of itself. It will not change. There is no cure for it. It will die. The only question is, how many will it bite before it dies and infect with its same disease that is destroying it? And if a father had the right to have a, a, a weapon, a concealed weapon, were to pull out a pistol and shoot that dog dead before that dog could uh, bite or infect his children. He wouldn't be scorned. He wouldn't be put down. He'd be considered a hero for doing it. Now, here's why this is important to understand. Very often today, in fact, most often today, in the things that, that I see, um, you have... An attempt, Islam has a public relations uh, nightmare <laughs> for the last, uh, well, um, let's say uh, 1,400 years. But they got a real bad one in our lifetime in the last 10 years. And uh, it, it just in the Western world, it just doesn't go down real well, uh, cutting people's heads off in the name of your God uh, for no other reason than that. So they got a public relations problem. So when they get on television or they get in some kind of a debate, one of the things that they will do is they will bring up this incident, another incident or two like this, principally this one in the Old Testament, and they will say, wait a second. The God of the Jews and the God of the Christians, the God of the Old Testament, he's every bit as bloody as Allah. Now, I don't know how many of you are, uh, ha come from a sales background, but that's the oldest trick in the book in sales. And you can look right through it. When you've got an inferior product that you're trying to sell, and you know it's inferior, and its reputation is mud, what you do in order to elevate the reputation of your inferior product is you name drop products or companies that are superior to yours in the hopes that everyone then will see your product or your religion or your thing in the light of the companies or the God of the names that you're dropping. And that's precisely what they're doing is to try and take the eyes off of the, uh, the clear teaching of Allah, kill Christians, kill Jews wherever you find them. I mean, it's in the Quran, and, and they're trying to give a moral equivalency to a God who waits 600 years before He is 
forced to pour out his judgment to an Allah or to a God who will simply take people's heads off because they will not believe in Allah and the expansion of a religious system on the basis of the sword. There is no comparison. And you will, with the continued growth of Islam in the world today and and even in our country, you're going to be faced with this. This is going to be an argument that you're going to hear all the way till the Lord comes back. And, and this, is, this is the difference between the two. It is comparing two entirely different situations and two entirely different uh, gods with one another. One is a true God and one is, is a figment of a man's imagination. And I would say it's worse than a figment of man's imagination. It's, it's demonic in its origin. Now the interesting thing uh, in... Uh, sometimes as people will balk at the righteous judgment uh, of God is to realize he's going to do the same thing in the future. There's going to come a moment in time on planet Earth where just like the Amorites of old and the Girgashites and all these folks, where they are, this world is going to cross a line in the eyes of God And God's going to look at the whole wide world and he's going to say, not one more of them, not a man, not a woman, not a child, is going to put their faith in my son until the start of the great tribulation, which is him pouring his wrath out on a Christ-rejecting world. And at that moment in time, that is something only he can know. I can't know it. You can't know it. No religious person can know it. No pagan can know it. But at that moment in time, he will remove his church from the world and then he will pour his wrath out on this world. Now, the beautiful thing is, is during the Great Tribulation period, we read that there is virtually an innumerable multitude of people are going to put their faith in Christ during that time. They're going to do it the hard way, you know, and that's a hard way to go. Get saved tonight, you know. If you have no concern for the heart of God, have some concern for yourself, you know, in terms of what you face. Best to give our life to the Lord now. It's a much easier uh, path. But the Bible, in, in, in the imagery of Revelation chapter 14, uh, it declares there, another angel came, uh, verse 18, uh, from uh, out of the altar, speaking of the heavenly scene, who had the power over fire, and he cried with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes, speaking of the sin of the world, are fully ripe. It's the same thing here where he waits and he waits and he waits and he waits and he waits. But a line gets crossed. And then, when that line gets crossed, it now becomes a challenge to his righteousness if he does not judge. And so he steps up and he judges. So this was a judgment, a very measured and a very, very... Uh, careful judgment that the Lord is uh, meeting out uh, on that uh, the uh, the people in the land. He doesn't take out the Moabites. He doesn't take out the Ammonites. He doesn't take these people were hardly uh, examples of godly living, but he doesn't judge them because they were not the danger that these people were. 
And so he removes that, and then he wants the Jews to be placed into that land, not because, as we'll see in just a few minutes, they're better than anybody else, but in order that they might live as an influence for God, a very strategic part of the world. Nation of Israel, the land of Israel, smaller than the state of New Jersey. I'd rather go to Israel than New Jersey. It's not a very big place, but it's a very influential place, not just because God's eye is on it, but three of the great continents of the world are held together in Israel, Asia, Africa, and Europe. And he said, I want that piece of land that everyone goes north and south and east and west through, I want them to have contact with with me in that land. Sometimes the Jews, you go over to Israel today, and sometimes if you, you'll run into a Jewish person as you're sharing your faith with them and stuff, and they'll say, well, you know, listen, it, 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 God did not give us a great commission. I know you have a great commission from Jesus that as Christians that you need to take the gospel into the whole world and that kind of thing. God didn't give us a great, a great commission. And, and one great answer to, to reply to them is he didn't need to do that. He didn't need to send you out. He brought the whole world to you by where he gave you your land. And so you had it easier than everybody else on things and, and dropped the ball. And uh, so here we are. So, listen, I'm being a little hard, aren't I, on things? So he said that you shall destroy and conquer them and utterly destroy them. And then the second rule of the conquest, you shall make no covenant with them. They were not to make any peace treaties with these people. They were not going to enter into alliances uh, with these people because that would be to align myself then with wickedness. It would be to align myself with what God has declared He must judge. That's why it's nuts to go back into the world as a Christian. Why in the world would I go back into that world when he's spoken from one end of the book to the other that he's going to judge it? I don't want to be found at the time he pours his judgment out in this world, be found aligned with what it is that he says he's going to judge. And, and so there was to be a separation from it. No treaty was to be made at all with it. Now it's interesting that in terms of these nations or these peoples that are in the land of, of Israel uh, or the, in the land of Canaan. Now what Canaan represents in terms of a, a picture or typology, it represents the land of promise. It doesn't represent a heaven because they fight wars there. But what it represents is it represents for us as Christians, for them it was the promised land, for us it represents this beautiful life that God has described in His promises, this life that is ours in Christ Jesus. And so that's our promised land. One week at a time, one day at a time, claiming another promise, making it a part of my life, moving on to the next promise, No lo- now seeing... Uh, uh, Having God sees me positionally as having all of these promises. This is how rich I am. This is how blessed I am. But it's a week-by-week process of then practically appropriating those promises into my life. Now, these enemies that are in the land, they're pictures of the flesh. They're pictures of the old man. And so the idea is, if I want to go in and and live the life that's described in the New Testament, who and what I am in Christ Jesus, you cannot make a treaty with the flesh or with the sins of of the flesh because they are out 
to kill you. As James says about sin, sin when it's full grown, it brings forth death. So there's not to be any treaty with the old sins that were in my life before I became a Christian or, or any of this kind of stuff. The old saying is the ruthlessness of sin, that it wants to destroy me, and it does. It doesn't want to just ruin my day. Sin, I, don't, I, I hope I'm not alone, I know I'm not alone. Sin works every single day to get a foothold in my life somewhere and to expand that foothold to destroy me. That goes on in all of our lives. And so the importance, I don't want to look and say, well, you know, it's, it's just a small, harmless thing. You allow it in, then it's working to destroy my relationship with God. And it'll ultimately take me out physically too. And, and so in the same as they were not to show any kind of mercy and, and make no kind of covenant, rather, with them, in, uh, in the land, we aren't to make any kind of agreement. All right, this sin gets to stay, that sin goes, these two sins stay, those three go. There's none of that. Everything's to be wiped out. He said, number three, that there, there, no mercy was to be shown to them, nor show mercy to them there at the end of, of verse uh, two. And he said, nor shall you make marriages with them. Don't be intermarrying with this group of people. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor shall you take uh, their daughter for your son. And here's the reason for it. And by the way, in the New Testament, there in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the Bible says that we are not as Christians to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. No Christian is to mar- ever marry a non-Christian. Now, if you are married to a non-Christian, Now you've got to be faithful to that that covenant, that commitment you've made. But if you're unmarried, only to marry a Christian. And and there's a lot of reasons for that. He gets into one of them in just a moment. But one of the great things about a Christian marriage, especially if you've got two people who love the Lord and their desire is to grow more and more like the Lord, you end up with kind of a triangle. You've got God or Christ-likeness here up at the top, and they're down here somewhere, you know, as they get married. But the more they grow in Christ-likeness, the more they grow in their relationship with the Lord, as a byproduct of that, they grow closer to one another. And it's, it's just the greatest way to live. But it can only happen with someone who I'm in spiritual agreement with. Now, he warns them here that they're not to do it, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And, and so he's saying, listen, you're gonna, if you have kids out of that relationship... Where the kids are going to be attracted to is to paganism, to worshiping the false gods. And so the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. Now, you know what that tells us? That tells us that God's judgment on the nations of that land, that it wasn't ethnic, it wasn't national. He says to the Jews, if you start doing what these people are doing, I'll take you out too. He's no respecter of persons. So he says, don't do it. Now, it's interesting, you go into the book of Nehemiah. Remember in, at the end of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is a fiery guy. I like him and uh, stuff like that. He did stuff, that's Old Testament stuff, some of the things he did. Ooh, man, just yank out beards and stuff like that and things. Hmm. Makes you smack your lips, doesn't it? But no, there's a better way. Uh, just kidding, of course. In, in the New Testament, that's not an option for us. But one of the things that happened is the children of Israel, they were marrying all of these uh, pagan women and, and all. And then what did Nehemiah say? He said, all the kids, 
spoke the language of the pagan mother. They couldn't speak Hebrew. They couldn't speak Aramaic. And so that, that's, that's what happens. Because it's a lot easier to live down toward the flesh than to live a higher life for God. So they, the best thing is to have two parents that are challenging the children and raising them up to this, uh, this higher, better life. And so he said uh, in, in verse 5, But thus you shall deal with them in terms of their religious uh, paraphernalia. You shall destroy their altars. So what is it that we don't understand about destroy? <laughs> and break down, you see the strength of these words, break down their sacred uh, pillars, cut down their wooden images, and burn their carved images with fire. And so he calls on them to destroy every kind of, uh, every vestige of uh, religions and the religious practices of the people that were in the land before them. Nothing was to be left. There wasn't to be anything left where the kids or anybody else might look at it, get exposed to it, gain a little curiosity uh, about it. And, and so again, we see how ruthlessly these things were to be dealt with. It's funny, um, in this regard, I think, today, every so often, you know, in the body of Christ, I'd, I try to stay pretty word-centered, and I'm, I'm pretty busy around here. We, we, we tend to stay pretty busy. And, uh, um, and, and focused on you and all this. I can't keep up with everything that's going on in the world or even in broader Christianity. Sometimes people bring me articles and different things and did you know this and that. I'm horrified sometimes, you know. But very often there's these new fads that are brought into Christianity and we need to do it this way and that way and then and bring this practice in and all. And you look at it and you say, where in the world is coming? Can you give me a chapter and verse for this thing? Oh, no. You say, what's the origin of it? comes out of some... God or some way that some false God is worshipped in the world. And I don't have any time for it. And so God just looks and says to the children of Israel, how much more for us who are in the blood of Jesus Christ, just looks and says, they don't have anything to offer you. There's nothing they can add to what I've given you as a means of worshipping me. And so don't get sucked into it. Don't allow any of that into your worship. For, that's a reason word, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. They were to keep these rules of conquest in order to protect their personal holiness. And then the second reason is the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The second reason is to protect God's call upon their lives. How much is at stake in the holiness of the nation of Israel at that point? An awful lot. The Bible you have in your hands, I have before me. God was going to bring that into the world through the Jews. Brought our Savior into the world through the Jews. And they had to, they had to have a zeal and a concern to protect God's calling in their life. Do you know you have a calling of God upon your life there's something that he, how he wants to use your life to accomplish his purposes in this world and to expand his kingdom. And that calling, if we are not careful not to allow this verse 5 kind of junk into our life, 
we will lose it. And we will throw it away for a bowl of pottage and worse, like Esau did. So it was to be a protection for the calling of God upon them as a nation. Then notice in verse 7, this is humbling, wow. The Lord, Moses said to them, did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. Why did he set his love on you? But because the Lord loves you. That was the reason that God uh, loved them because uh, of, of the fact that he just decided to love them. Now, it's interesting to me, if someone were to come up to you as a Christian and say, <clears throat> say to you, listen, <clears throat> I know you think God loves you. I know you know God loves you. I have my doubts, but you know it and the Bible teaches it. But if somebody were to come up to you and say, why in the world does God love you? What would be your answer? Don't shout it out. You know, there's a million wrong answers, and there's only one right answer. Why does God love you? Well, because my mama loves me. And when I was a baby, I had the cutest, biggest cheeks. Nobody could help just twisting those little cheeks. Everybody's loved me ever since. I think God's about the same. God loves me because I love country music. <laughs> Talks about God and, and country and stuff like that. Stuff I know God is into. That's why God... Or I'm, God loves me because I'm a good person. I'm least better than my neighbor. I'm a right hand on my left hand side. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Or any other answer except for this answer. Why does God love you? Because He loves you. Because... God is love. Now that's humbling. I like to think that God loves me because he saw some kind of a thing that, you know, nobody else really sees in me, but he sees in me. That special little thing that's pretty hard for people to see, but he, he gets it. It just puts a little twinkle in Dad's eye when he looks at me, and he just loves me for that. That's not how it works. The Bible says he loves me, because God is love. Now that is humbling. But it is the only sure basis of a personal relationship between sinful man and a perfectly righteous God. Because if he loved me for some reason, then that love would be conditional. And if I ever cease to be that thing, then he would cease to love me. So God looks and says, Whoo! They're all sinners down there. I better find a reason to love them that has nothing to do with them. And he did. Because he is love. And that's why we have a relationship with him that isn't one where I wonder, today does he love me does he, or, or does he not love me? Tomorrow does he, does he love me, does he not love me? We have stability. We have an absolute confidence in our love for us because he has loaded this thing completely in his court. 
In Jesus, He's established the most one-sided covenant that you can make between God and man. Jesus said the covenant or the agreement or the contract or the relationship that we have with God is based upon Jesus' blood and nothing else. Not His blood and I, me, my, and I, and we, and this. It's based on His blood alone. And so as humbling as it is to realize that there's not much that's really lovable in me, we'll get to this in the next chapter in about six weeks, evidently. <laughs> Don't enjoy that too much. Somebody enjoyed that just a little too much over here. But, but it's freeing because we realize he has found a way to be consistent in his love and in his relationship uh, with me. And so, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so his love for them out of his sovereign choice of them for his purposes in human history. And therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, you're not just anybody in this world, this is your God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those uh, who love Him and keep His commandments. He repays those who hate Him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with Him who hates Him. He will repay them to His face. So since God is uh, up, up and up, He is very, very candid about the fact that he is that uh, that he blesses obedience, that he judges unrighteousness or wickedness. The lesson of that, knowing that about God, is to reject wickedness and to give myself to righteousness. It's interesting that when when he says there in verse ten that he repays those who hate him to their face. It means that when God judges the wicked for their rebellion against him, that they will know that it was him. They won't say, oh, you know, that was just something that happened, or that could happen to anyone. Uh, God says, I will judge them in a way that they will know that that came from me. And therefore, here's the lesson of it, because God is, in order to be just, he has to be this way, therefore you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you today to observe them. So that's the only sane uh, way to live. And then it shall come to pass because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb. So he starts to tell them about the blessings that come out of just simple obedience uh, to his word. They're going to have large families. And uh, that was a great blessing uh, in those days, even more than, than today. One of the things, they didn't have Social Security in those days or these kind of social nets. Much of the world doesn't. Your, our security in our old age is, is, uh, is our children. And I'll tell, you, I'll tell you, it wouldn't be a bad idea if it went back that way because you'd be a lot more careful about how you raise those little guys. If you knew I'm, I'm going to be 78 years old someday maybe and these fo I'm going to be at their mercy... I don't think you're going to be raising them up to join gangs or something. I think you're going to make them productive citizens. 
And, and so uh, this was your security in your old age. So large families were wonderful. We know that children are a blessing from the Lord apart from any financial security, and they're quite a drain on the front end. <laughs> so, so he's going to bless them with large family and the fruit of your land and your grain and your new wine and your oil so they'll have large harvests, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock and the land which he swore to your fathers uh, to give you. They're going to have large flocks, large herds. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or a female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness, so protection from the diseases that were uh, common in the world in those days. And so the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you. And so you remember we were in the law earlier. God gave them laws about personal hygiene, about diet, about how to store food, how to do these different things. And all of these had tremendous uh, health benefits to protect them uh, from the diseases that afflicted the rest of the world that weren't living under the wisdom of, of God, in addition to God speaking to them about how they should live their lives and as a result of living a righteous life, a lot of diseases can be avoided by, by living a godly life. And so he speaks to them of how the blessing that obedience is. And you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eyes shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare uh, to you. Uh, if you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? And so they're going to, I mean, they're going in. The, it's the same people that scared the first generation 40 years earlier. Only they've had time to become even more populous. Uh, po you, you know the word. And uh, more time to big higher walls and build higher walls and longer walls in their cities. And so there was a real temptation that they would begin to fear and doubt their ability to dispossess this people. He said, you shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. So he says, when you're faced with fear, remember I, I'm the God that got you out of Egypt. And then not only I got you out of Egypt, I've been faithful to, to, to you ever since. The great trials which your eyes saw, the signs and wonders, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out, and so shall the Lord your God do to all the people of whom you are afraid. So he says, when you're afraid, remember, I brought you out of Egypt. For us, a picture of the world. And I've been faithful to you ever since. Remember how I saved you. Remember how faithful I've been to you ever since. And what I've been to you, I will be to you as you obey me in the conquest uh, of the land. And so that's his, he, he tells him, those are the two things you need to remember. Listen, the God who saved us out of our sin and out of the bondage of our sin and out of darkness and out of hell, he knows how to take us into the life he saved us into into the promised land. That's not a difficulty for him. He's already done the heavy lifting. And moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among those uh, who are left, who hide themselves from you in the conquest of the land uh, until uh, they are destroyed. I don't know how many of you have been stung by a, a hornet. I've only been stung by a, 
a, a wasp or a yellow jacket. Ooh, I can feel it right now. That's a sting. Now, I don't care in those days. I don't care what great, how great you are as a soldier, how great your sword is, how great your leather armor is or what. You get attacked by hornets. You're dropping everything and running. So the Lord just saying supernaturally, listen, you go do the best you can. I'm going to cover you. I will supernaturally take care of details that, that uh, might need to be taken care of. And he said, mm, let's see right there, verse 21, you shall not be terrified of them for, that's a reason word, the Lord your God, the great and awesome God, do you believe that about him tonight, is among you and not anybody else. You're different. You're different people in this world because of the God that you walk with, who is among you, who you serve. And it's true of us. And the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you. Again, it's the Lord's work. He'll do it little by little. And uh, you will be unable to destroy them all at once. In other words, it's going to take time. Victory is going to be gradual. It's certain, but it's going to be gradual. You won't be unable to destroy them all at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you and will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. Again, a picture of, of when we come to know Christ, then we start to read the New Testament. We see, that's who I am in Christ. And so we start to... Uh, 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 appropriate those promises in our life, and then these old areas of our flesh want to rise up and say, no, no, we're still here, you know, and I've still got control, and you say you're under new management, but we've had control of your life for a long time. And what does the Lord do? He takes th this, this sin here, and He just says, all right, Damien, let's go ahead and let's tackle this one in the power of the Holy Spirit and the light of my word. And you take that and you defeat that and put it in its place biblically, wipe it out. And then what happens? You just lean back and say, all right, I'm an expert in faith and victory. And that's going to be the title of my autobiography. No, what God does is, is then the next sin or the next thing that kept us in bondage in Egypt or the next thing that's controlled our life for so long, it raises its head and said, sure, you can wipe that thing out over there, but I've been around longer and I've got a stronger hold and God moves on to this thing and then after that, the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, all the way to heaven until, until all of them have been wiped out. That's why you've got to be patient with yourself a little bit too. I, I, I don't know, when, when you came to know the Lord, I think the Lord, of course, He knows everything. So here He is, here I come to know, know Him, and uh, He looks at the list, and, and He knows how long I'm going to live before I go to, to heaven. And he, and he looks at the list, and He sees how many things are on the list. Maybe it's 30 things, maybe it's 700 things that He's going to knock out between the time I come to know Him and I, I go uh, to heaven. He just looks at that list, and He just starts to, to work them off. Sometimes, it's really funny in the body of Christ, somebody becomes a new Christian, and the first thing they, they think God's biggest concern is smoking. There's no ashtrays up here, and I'll tell you, I, tell you, I don't want any Christians out there smoking and thinking I've got a bunch of smokers in the body of Christ. 
So any smoker that becomes a Christian, that's the first thing on his list. He's going to knock that smoke out. People are dying to get off cigarettes and, and everything and all. And then they go out after service. It's great because the time is changing. It'll be dark pretty soon. And you head out and they get out of the service, go out in the car, and you see all these flashes of lights in the car, you know. How long was that guy going to go? Man, alive! Thought I was on a flight! Airplane or something like And uh, But... So, so we sometimes think he's going to knock that out as the first thing. And they, I, I think he'll get to it, just in the name of health and stewardship of the body for longevity. But it may not be number one, it may not be number three, it may be number 15. It may be number 30, where a person's needs and the things that are liable to destroy them, there's 30 things that are more urgent in their life that the Lord's going to work on before he gets to that. And so there's just that realization, this is going to take time all the way till we get to heaven, for him to just keep moving these things out of our lives. And he will deliver their kings over into your hands, and you will destroy their name from under heaven. No one uh, shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. And you shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. So you're going to go in, you're going to wipe them out, they're going to leave all these gods behind. You'll burn them with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them. So they would overlay these things, the wood with, with silver and gold. Don't take it. Don't take it for yourself, lest you be snared by it. So he said, stay away from what the, the world worships. Stay away from what they worship because there's, there's an attractiveness to it that may hook you. Attractiveness to the flesh. So for your, it's a danger to you, number one. And then number two, it's an abomination to the Lord your God. Nor shall you bring an abomination of the wickedness of the world into your house. Lest you be, lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, for it is an accursed thing. Our homes are to be a sanctuary from temptation. They are not to be filled with the wickedness of what the world worships. And whatever we have to do to make our house that sanctuary, that's what we have to do. And we have to do that individually. Maybe somebody else can have this or that in their home. They have no temptation in that area and it, and it doesn't stumble them and they don't get drawn into it. But it may not work for you because you'll be sinning every day of the week. And just for us to look and say, in terms of our own house, what makes it a temptation-free zone for me and my family? And then set that up. Because God knows we need a, tempt a sanctuary, a temptation-free zone in our lives. Because we're out in that world a lot, too. So, chapter 8. Let's move a, a little distance uh, into it um, anyway. Chapter 8 is characterized by two great words. And the first word is found in verse 2. It's the word remember. And then the second great word is down in verse 11, and it's repeated frequently after that. And that is the word forget. So uh, remember and forget. 
Early in the chapter, Moses remind, uh, reminded them of how good God had been to them during the 40 years that they had wandered in the wilderness. And so he, uh, he wanted them to remember. Remember how good it's been when you obey God. Remember how uh, great that it is and how, how gracious God has been to you. And it's a good reminder for us today because the hardest thing to, the hardest thing to do is to sin against grace and to sin against love. That's the hardest thing. If I sin against God, the, the, the thing that breaks my heart is I've sinned against a God who's been nothing but good to me. Every single time. And He's been nothing but loving to me. And it breaks my heart. And it shames me. And it makes me determined by the Spirit of God, I don't want to do that to that God of mine. And so it's good to remember how good He's been to us. It's a great defense in our lives. Then later in the chapter, Moses reminds them not to forget the Lord. And and there's a temptation in material prosperity uh, to begin to forget the Lord. And so he gives that, that warning. And so now... Uh, he he, he uh, speaks to this second generation. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that, as a reason word, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. And so he's declaring once again, in the, in the words of Ansylvania, you win or lose by the way you choose. And what he's saying is, our obedience or our disobedience, that determines our future. Wow, do we need some public service announcements on every radio station in the United States of America. That our decisions and our decision to obey or disobey determines our future. I think a lot of young people, because of a failure to be raised by their parents and for input and even the pressure on a culture, by the culture toward righteousness that was a part of my childhood, now largely disappeared, that they don't even sometimes think in those terms. That this is setting my course in life, what I'm about to do tonight, or the decisions that I'm about to make concerning my life. And so Moses reminds them of it. Isn't it great what God speaks to us as His people that nobody else is hearing, but God is so wise and He's so loving? He said, You shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. And the first reason that He did it was in order to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not, and so uh, he starts to give reasons for the um, the wilderness experience for the second generation. Now, the first generation they wandered forty years in the wilderness, and 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 what was the purpose of the forty years of wandering in the wilderness for the first generation? Death, they died. So the children of Israel, the second generation, look at it and say, "Well, what was those forty years about for our lives?" And Moses is going to lay those things out right now. And he said, the first reason for all that the Lord did for you during that time was to humble you, to test you, to let you know what was in your heart, whether you would keep God's commandments uh, or not. 
God did not put the children of Israel through the second generation, uh, through all of the difficulties and the tests and the trials of that 40 years in the wilderness because he didn't know what was in their heart. He <laughs> said, so, man, I wonder what these people are made of. I think I'll put them through an obstacle course and maybe I'll find out. He knew exactly what was inside of them. They did not know what was inside of them. And so it was all that, they, that he might expose what was inside of them. And boy, when God took them through the trials, what God exposed in them, I mean, really wasn't very pretty to look at. I mean, they failed about every single test and the rebellion of their wicked hearts, I mean, just exposed over and over and over again. You think about how many times the children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, and uh, did they respond to God's tests with rebellion? That's it. You call this food? I don't call it food. I ain't seen any leeks or onions for months. We don't have any water out here. And they just would complain. And over and over again, they'd threaten to raise up a new leader and go back to Egypt. That was in their hearts. Did it over and over and over again. And the trials exposed it. And yet, God didn't give up on them. He didn't give up on them. God was gracious to them, poured His grace out on them. Why? In order to humble them. So that when they would look back on those 40 years in their life, they would say, I cannot believe that God put up with me all these years. If I were him, I would not have put up with me. He should have wiped us out at least a dozen times. And then what gets produced in our heart? Is just a, a, just a prayer and a thanksgiving toward God. Lord, I am so humbled that you would stick with a people like us. That you would stick with a person like me. And the same thing that happened to the children of Israel is the same thing that happens to us as Christians. Where we look back at all of our sins and all of our failures and we think about how God has stuck with us through one sin after another, through one failure after another, even when we tried as hard as we could and when we look back and see how good He's been to someone like us, it humbles us. And what we learn about ourselves and what we learn about Him and all of it, it humbles us. We can't believe that He stays committed to someone that, like us despite all of our failures. And what does it do? It makes us love Him all the more for it. There might be one or two of us, maybe not. But there might be one or two of us that are in the room tonight, maybe a relatively new Christian, maybe not. And you look at God and God's choice of you and everything, and you think, you know, God, you did all right saving me. I can see it. These other people, they baffle me. But me, no, I think you saw this little thing inside of me and this little thing inside of me, and if you work it kind of this way, some good things can happen for you, God. And there can be that attitude uh, toward him. And you know, when a person has that kind of an attitude, number one, it's terrible bondage to live in because now I've got to keep being all those things that I think God chose me for. 
But one of the nice things is when a person still feels that way, you don't have to correct it. You just have to let time take care of it. Because that person will sin and sin and sin again. And they will fail and they will fail and they will fail again. And they will come to a place in their life where when they think about what God got when God got them is a project and no big prize. And there's just something about walking with God and our own failures that humbles us. It removes our pride in a relationship with with Him. And we cannot believe how He could be so good and so gracious to a person like me. Now you would think that that would produce a bunch of renegade, good-for-nothing, willfully rebellious people, but it doesn't. Because again, the hardest thing in the world, and God knows it, is to sin against love and to sin against grace. And when I look at what God, how He has stuck with me through thick and thin and through success and through failure, it makes me more determined in the grace of God to be obedient to Him and to live for Him. And so that's what He was doing here as He, he humbled them to test, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. So He humbled you. He allowed you to hunger, fed you with manna that you did not know, uh, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so in the wilderness, they couldn't produce food out there for 40 years. They had to depend on the Lord for manna all those 40 years. And the Lord provided for them that manna. And not only did He just provide it, you know, without telling them He would do it, He told them He would do it. So He provided it in response to His promise. So when He feeds them with manna for 40 years, it isn't just to keep them, you know, eating three squares a day for 40 years and keep them alive. He's teaching them He's faithful to His Word. I said, I'd feed you every single day, and I've fed you every single day. So you learn that man doesn't live by bread alone. It isn't just the bread, but, but man enters into life as God has intended us to, to enter into through simple obedience to the Word of God. And that's what they were learning ab- about that. The blessings that are... You can, I can stuff my face three times a day for 75 years and be no closer to knowing what life is about or the meaning of life than the day I started. You can't, it, it, you can't figure it out on, on just on the pure physical meals. It, it takes entering in, as we said this morning, into an obedient relationship with God. And then all of a sudden... Now I know how a person doesn't just exist, make it through the week physically, but what life is intended to be. He said, your garments didn't wear out on you, nor did your foot swell for those 40 years. Think about the money they saved on clothes. Isn't that something this time of the year? You've got to buy all those clothes for the kiddos. So he just was faithful to them, not only in their, in their food, but also in their clothing. Take care of their physical needs. Again, he said he would do it, and he did it. That's what he's teaching. I'm faithful 
to my word. And that you should know in your hearts that a man chastens his... Uh, you should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. That 40 years was a period of disciplining them, training them for the conquest of the land. Again, there is something harder than being prepared for great difficulty in our life, and that is to go into that difficulty unprepared. God will never do it if he has his say in it. And therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. So the necessity, he taught him to fear him in that wilderness. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land uh, of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of the valleys and hills. Now they're out in the... <laughs> this, is, this is the greatest. would make their lips smack. Wow! A land of wheat and barley, vines and fig trees and pomegranates. A land of olive oil and honey. Olive oil and honey! A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig... Uh, uh, copper, And so it's a rich land I'm bringing you into. And when you have eaten and are full, it'll bring prosperity, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. So thankful heart. Thankful heart for how the Lord had blessed them. So what he's saying to them is right around the corner, you folks are going to know a unparalleled prosperity and material wealth that's about to come your way. The danger will be that the blessings, let me put it this way, in general, obedience to God's word always leads to blessing. We know in the spiritual realm, but most often even in the material realm. Not always. Hebrews chapter 11 some people die naked and, you know, without, without adequate clothing and they die martyrs' deaths. That's real. That is an indication of somebody whether they have faith or they don't have faith. But in general, obedience brings prosperity. The danger is, is that that prosperity that does come to an obedient life will now become the greatest danger to the intimacy of our relationship with God. And so he speaks to them now about how to handle that. And we'll pick it up in verse 11 next week. So let's stand together. And if the worship team would come back up, that would be great. It took a long time for those chairs to all go up, didn't it? You were sitting a long time, weren't you? Good for you. Good for you. God bless you. Let's pray together. Lord, tonight, we just want you to know that we see ourselves and these children of Israel. We don't look down on them in any way. Same gene pool from Adam and Eve. And we just want you to know tonight that we are humbled by your love, by your grace toward us, by your faithfulness. And Lord, it's the testimony of every single one of us, whether we realize it or not. We can look back on our lives and see where you could have and 
maybe should have wiped us out a dozen times, and you didn't. And it makes us love you all the more, and it makes us want to walk with you all the more, and it makes us want to obey your word as a witness to your glory and your wisdom in this world all the more. Thank you, Lord, for how you work in the lives of your children in this world. Thank you for Jesus who's made it possible for us to be a part of that wisdom and a part of that way. Thank you for all that we are and all that we have because of him. Thank you, Lord, just with great simplicity and with one heart. Thank you, Lord, for being our God tonight. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.